welcome to Best Original Podcast, a show where we review, analyze, and discuss the Best Picture nominees of yesteryear. <laughs> All right. So, Ben, <laughs> yeah. good good practice. Yeah, yeah. Now, in your own words, do a normal one. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to Best Original Podcast. My name's Ben Vanell. My name's Timothy Clark. And here on this show, we talk about Best Picture nominees. Uh, we do a little mini-series. We started with the year 2007 and the Best Picture nominees of 2008. 2008 ceremony. What a great way to start this podcast series. We've yeah. talked about There Will Be Blood, mm-hmm. Atonement, uh, Juno, Michael Clayton, and we're finishing this miniseries with a talk of the winner, yes. No Country for Old Men. Joining us to discuss this movie is, wow, how would you describe <laughs> this gentleman? He's uh, God. <laughs> he's a raconteur. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> he's, uh, he's a storyteller. Yeah. <laughs> there might be no country for old men, but there's yes podcasts for <laughs> our guest joining us for this episode. <laughs> I'd say he's a comedian, he's a podcaster, he's a friend of ours. It's Tommy Dasselow. I hated that. I'm firing, <laughs> a, I'm firing up the little nozzle on my oxygen tank as we speak, getting ready to let rip in here. <laughs> you guys before the show were stressing about not, having, not, not knowing how to intro the pod, yeah. and then you just went into the most seamless and what seemed like incredibly well rehearsed and scripted introduction I've heard in a very long time. Try, yeah. Every time I'm like, as I'm saying it, I'm thinking, is this succinct enough? <laughs> like, right. does this is this concise enough? Does this convey what the show is? It's a movie review podcast. Yeah, focused on best picture nominees. Yeah. We're, we're like Ricky yeah. Gervais hosting the Globes, where we're very good at appearing like we're going off script. <laughs> when in actual fact, we know exactly what we're saying yeah. at any one point. Yeah, yeah, no tie, beer in hand. Yeah, but the auto cue is just really doing its job. <laughs> Out of sight. Uh, I'm so excited for this episode. This is, yeah, as you mentioned, Tim, the the winner of uh, Best Picture of this year, No Country for Old Men, directed by the Coen brothers, two of my all-time favourite filmmakers, mm. starring, oh, it's a cavalcade of stars. Josh Brolin, yep. Tommy Lee Jones mm-hmm. as the titular old man, uh, <laughs> yeah. Javier Bardem as the titular No Country. Yeah. Uh, Kelly McDonald, mm-hmm. uh, Garrett Delahunt, yeah. Barry Corbin for a scene. It's a great cast. It's, it's really great, deep. It's like a short list, but everyone on the list is great. Yeah, mm. Heaps of uh, craggly-faced Texas character actors popping up. A lot of, uh, I guess, are they staffies maybe? There's a few Staffordshire Bull Terriers in it. Right, okay. So that, you were talking about the actual dogs. Yeah. <laughs> I thought this was an industry term for extras that you <laughs> have very offensively... <laughs> The no, below the lines in the filth, yeah. <laughs> no, there's some dogs. Let's uh, dive right into No Country for Old Men with a little plot summary. And the Oscar goes to No Country for Old Men. Scott Wooden, you can go on and Joel Cohen producers. Anton Chigurh escapes custody and steals a car. As welder and Vietnam vet Llewellyn Moss stumbles across a drug deal gone bad, absconding with a case full of money. Sheriff Ed Tom Bell is on the trail of both men, though he is always one step behind. Shigur has been hired by one of the parties involved in the drug deal to track down the money and kill Moss. After a series of close calls, another hitman, Carson Wells, is brought in to kill Shigur, who appears to have gone rogue and may be trying to recover and keep the money for himself. Shigur kills Wells and offers Llewellyn a deal. Give up the money and he won't kill his wife. Llewellyn refuses. After his mother-in-law accidentally tips off the Mexican cartel, the other side of the drug deal, as to his whereabouts, Llewellyn is killed. Sheriff Bell arrives as they drive away. Overwhelmed by the evil of the world, Bell retires. Shigur returns to kill Moss's wife and is seriously injured in a car accident as he attempts to leave. Bell recounts his dreams to his wife. The end. I've never felt more like an uninterested woman at a party. <laughs> <laughs> Just watching Ben Vanell read the plot summary of a Coen Brothers film off his yeah. phone. Can you do that again, but as if you're like shouting it into someone's ear with your hand cupped over it because there's loud music? What do you mean you're just going to get another drink? You've got a full drink right there in your hand. People say it's Bardem's first nomination. He was previously nominated in the 2001 ceremony. Um, no, I don't know anyone else here. <laughs> <laughs> to say that that was more uninteresting than anything that's ever happened on any other podcast is yeah. pretty rough. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a plot summary of one of the greatest movies of all time. 
Uh, when did you guys first come across this movie? Did you see it in cinemas? I did, yeah. Mm. How old were you, Ben? How old was I? Uh, you would, I was 20, 21. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was 21. As we've probably said on every episode, Tim, you were 16 and I was 20. Did you go see this at the movies? I didn't see this in the movies. No, mm-hmm. I had to wait until uh, this came on DVD. But I knew at the time that this was getting all this... Uh, amazing awards buzz yeah, at the right. time, and I, I definitely wanted to check this one out. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Getting choked up. Yeah. Just <laughs> remembering the buzz. I yeah. didn't get to see it in the cinema. <laughs> I was only 16. <laughs> I said, no, I had to watch Spider-Man 3. <laughs> um, but ben, did you watch this in the cinemas at the time? Yes, I did. I saw it with my family on Boxing Day, which is, I think, when it came out in Australia. <laughs> I think that I had also already seen it before it came out in cinemas in Australia. Oh, you're doing some... I just you read did... the book, you cheap little <laughs> I'm in the academy. I got a screener. <laughs> I was just laughing, imagining an alternate world where the title of this podcast was Did You See This in the Cinema? <laughs> and we just you just discussed that for an hour. You never get into any other facts about the film. Just, you, just circle around the question for as long as you can. All right, guys, it's been 55 minutes. We've finally got to get an answer out of you. Did you see it at the cinema? I think so. (laughs) I mean, this is the perfect year for us to be talking about that because it's like Tim was 16, I was 20. Maybe we're dialed in differently to movies. If we're talking about 91 releases, I don't think I would have seen it at the cinema. Mm. No, probably not. No. I was born in a a screening of... Aladdin. Yes. <laughs> yes, I did it. I remembered one movie from a year. Yes. Well, Aladdin is the first movie I can ever remember going to see at the cinema. Me really? too. Mom, yeah. Yeah, wow. same. So wait, Ben, you went mm. with your family yeah, to yeah. see this. Yes. Having already seen it mm. in a in a somewhat dubious manner, I'm guessing. Yes. Were you up front with your family about this or did you not want them to know that you'd break, broken the law? I bel- the bigger boys at school took you around the back of the portables <laughs> and you watched a screen, a copy of No Country for Old Men. I think... Then your dad saw you and then you had to watch the entire Coen Brothers filmography <laughs> yeah. up until that point. I think that my family watched it with me. I think at least my dad and my sister. <laughs> Wait, so you all <laughs> okay. watch a screener yes. and then you hit the cinema yeah. again, like together. Yeah, yeah. Boys, may I just say, this is the best episode of Did You See This in the Cinemas <laughs> I've a, ever heard. Yeah, this there's is a real hot one. A, yeah, there's a lot going on here. <laughs> I think that we were so excited to see it. Okay. We watched a cam version of it. Oh, uh, cam version. Yeah, it's even worse. Yeah. I don't know, maybe if all of us did. I think my sister might have as well. Because we were just like, yeah, I can't, I literally can't wait to see it. Yeah. And then. And then your dad, racked with guilt over yeah. what he's done, yeah. taking money out of the honest folk at village cinemas. Yep. He's just pacing and he's like, kids, we've we got to go to the cinema. we got to make this right. Yeah. And you're like, but dad, we've already seen it. I remember every scene so clearly. <laughs> it was a week ago. Get in the car. <laughs> you couldn't stand not knowing what happened when that little man walked in front of the screen at the bottom. I know. I couldn't see what the whether the coin was a head or a tail. The guys, <laughs> I, I think we were just all pumped to see it. And we watched it, and then we watched it again really quickly. And I hadn't seen it again. Oh, I thought you meant like at double speed. <laughs> your dad's slipping a 50 to the projectionist. Yeah, look, we've kind of already seen this at home, so if you can just yeah, play it at yeah. four times the speed. <laughs> but I haven't watched it, or hadn't watched it again, since that cinema viewing. Yeah, me either. Yeah, right. right. Had you, Tim? This is, yeah, I've, I've fairly regularly rewatched oh, wait, this one. Because you didn't see it in the cinema. We've established that. No. Mm. Yeah. If you go back to the start of, <laughs> did you see this in the cinema? <laughs> Which, hey, by this reaction, I reckon it's going to become a fairly consistent topic yeah. on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have to see it on DVD. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at home. And it, it's a fairly constant rewatch for me. I watch it every right. couple, of, couple of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was pleased to be asked to do this because it is one that every every now and then when I think about it, I Go, oh, I should I should rewatch that. It's been so. I mean, yeah, 12, 13 years ago. Yeah. So it's good good to have an excuse to fire it up again. I kind of file it away in the back of my head as a movie I know is so amazing mm. that I don't really need to go back to it. Like there's movies that I sort of uh, have increased my enjoyment of on rewatching them. There's mm-hmm. movies that I haven't seen. Obvious, like you know, there's other stuff that I want to watch, and I'd always had that in the back of my head as like. Yeah, No Country for Old Men is one of the best movies of all time. You don't need to delve back into it, almost. Um, but fuck, I'm glad that <laughs> we're doing this podcast because I I think gained an even greater appreciation for it on this rewatch. Yeah, it right. really is one of the ones that 
in your mind you think, oh, this is so dense and dour and sad that I know it's a great film. I don't want to go back in. But when you do, you forget how uh, good it is at filming the small minutia Mm. of this tense crime thriller. Yeah. That it just flies past. I loved it. I, when I was watching, I was sort of thinking about how like the movies that we've discussed so far are like pretty clear genre movies. Like there's a comedy, there's a period uh, romance there's a corporate thriller and there is a sort of epic character study in the mold of Citizen Kane and No Country for Old Men for me obviously it has these huge like genre tropes but it falls into the category of like perfect filmmaking genre mm. almost like yeah it's a western and it's a crime thriller but it's just like every grain of every scene of this is just perfect yeah. to me. And I think that's why we chose to start with this ceremony because it is a great mix of bona fide classics that people still herald to this day. Mm. And it's a great mix of genres, like you were saying, but each one of them flips the genre expectations yeah. within each film as well. Yes. Which No Country does fantastically because you yeah. expect this is going to be a neo-Western crime thriller, Mm -hmm. and halfway through, it completely flips it. The main character is killed off screen. The bad guy gets away, and it's Mm -hmm. a contemplative narrative about an old man facing his soon death. Yeah, completely. And I think that aspect of the movie is what I appreciated more uh, on this rewatch. What about you, Tommy? Uh, Well, do you want to know something wild? I was trying to piece this together in my head. I have a feeling that this was the first... Coen Brothers movie I ever saw. Oh, yeah. Wow. I never really got big into the Coens. Fuck, I was fully expecting you to just go, you know what? I realize I have watched the wrong film. (laughs) 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 I watched the Magnificent Seven remake with Chris Pratt and Denzel Washington. Um, Yeah, I I have a feeling. So I kind of was just into it because it looked like a cool, you know, crime thriller movie. I can't, I'm trying to remember what led me to going and seeing it. Like, mm. I I don't really remember hearing too much about it beforehand. Right. I think maybe a friend wanted to go. I think that must have been it. Yeah. A friend had heard a bit about it. Yeah. But I don't remember going in being like, oh, yeah, this Javier Bardem performance is going to be great. Yeah, or, right. Well, that's the thing. The cast, like, yeah, Tommy Lee Jones is great and he's been in heaps of stuff and we all know him. Like, Men in Black is probably the most you know, iconic thing for us, for people our age, almost. Mm. But he's not like a draw for a movie. Well, you know what's weird too is that the the end of it kind of all hangs on him. Yeah. But he's not, he's actually not really in it that much. He's not in it mm. heaps, no. There's this, there's this huge stretch where you kind of don't see him at all. And yeah. I kind of, I'd forgotten that. And he's also, the one thing that's weird about it is that, yeah, like you said in the, in the plot summary, like he is always one step behind. So mm. he, he, in a weird way, even though his kind of thoughts about No Country for Old Men and mm. his, he wraps up the film. But for the rest of it, he to me anyway, he does kind of feel a bit inconsequential. Right. Like he mm. doesn't really drive anything in the plot. There's yeah. never a point where he nearly gets, you know, he doesn't come into contact with anyone else at any point. Yeah, which is uh, apparently he, he's a bit more involved in the book. Right. But I don't necessarily think in terms of the plot, like... I don't think the Coen's changed a lot from the book in terms of the plot, the flow of the story, mm-hmm. but you get a lot of his internal monologue, apparently. Ah, uh, okay. So you get his perspective more, which I think is the point of the movie. Like, the plot is thrilling and tense and, and really, really well executed, but, like, the theme of the movie is entirely wrapped up in, I think, his character. Yeah. I think the fact that Ed Tom Bell, Tommy Lee Jones' character, is much more of an outsider in the film version. Mm. Like you were saying, Ben, lends credence to the theme that this is about an outsider observing changes in the world. Mm, yeah, it, yeah. It, uh, I think the, the title No Country for Old Men apparently comes from a, I was looking it up, comes from a Keats poem. Uh, Yates. Yates. Yeah, yeah. Keats, Yates, love them both. <laughs> uh, from a poem about uh, a man viewing evil changing in the world and it's becoming, in his old age, more aggressive and leaving him behind. So I think him being an observer in this... It's like looking back on the folly of youth and not taking advantage of it enough. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And having everything slow down for yourself, but seeing that the world is still violent and still crazy and you can't keep up with it for your entire life. Yeah, yeah. Let's dive into the awards because uh, we can circle back around to sort of scenes and performances... 
I think it's particularly interesting that Tommy Lee Jones is not nominated for Best Supporting Actor. And I'll tell you why. I think they just didn't want to crowd the field too much with No Country. Because I could see him right. definitely getting a lead Oscar, lead or supporting, I feel, now that right. we bring up the fact that he's not in it that much. Is is there a literal rule about how, what qualifies as a lead performance? No, it's just what you... Just the might. vibe. What they feel, <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you're like the production company, you choose who to put forward for stuff? Basically, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. right. It's why it, it's a bit of a contention that Anthony Hopkins won lead for Science of the Lambs. Right. He's technically only in it for 16 minutes. Yeah, fuck. But his presence is felt uh, a lot more. Like, people are talking about him in yeah. scenes he's not even in. Yeah, like Bucci. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I... But something like this, you can imagine them maybe thinking, well, if we put him up for lead, then he's potentially up against, like, what, Daniel Day-Lewis? You know, yeah. there's, like, big performances that are, like, someone who is on screen for the whole thing. So, yeah, it probably is wiser to mm-hmm. put him up against someone who's having equal screen time. But mm. they don't, as far as I know, co- like, put him up necessarily for Best Supporting either because Javier Bardem oh, yeah. is the yeah. big boy. Like, he gets the nomination. He gets the win. He is almost like a uh, Hannibal Lecter figure in this movie, except he's in it constantly. Um, so, the nominations, obviously, are Best Picture... Best Director, Best Supporting Actor actor for Javier Bardem, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography for Roger Deakins, Best Film Editing for the Coen Brothers, Best Sound Editing, and Best Sound Mixing. Yeah, even in the in the first like half an hour, there are some just incredible shots, like when he's out in the desert at night and he's got his car parked up over the hill. Oh yeah, and the headlights are on. And yeah, the, yeah. all yeah. that. Stuff and a chase just... scene during a sunrise. Oh, can't yeah. even imagine how many days would have taken to to shoot that. Fuck, of course, because yeah. it tra- it does it transitions from night as mm. well, doesn't it? That would be painstaking work. Amazing, yeah. I can see why they won uh, best director. I, I yep. looked it up. There's only been four times a duo has been nominated for best director. Yeah, two of them are the Coens. Right. One of them is Warren Beatty and Buck Henry for Heaven Can Wait. The earliest one is Jerome Robbins and Robert Wise for West Side Story. Oh, right. so it's only happened four times. Fuck. Is the other one for the Coens Fargo? The other one for them is True Grit. Fargo was... Oh. Ethan was nominated uh, solo. Oh, that's before they changed the Directors Guild rules. Yeah, right. So, yeah, obviously it wins Best Picture. They win Best Director. Uh, Bardem wins Best Supporting Actor. And they win for Best Adapted Screenplay. The other four noms did not win. Roger Deakins famously had, like, what, 12 nominations before 12, he won? 13, I think. Yeah. yeah. Which just kept the narrative going further and further. I mean, mm. he is up against uh, what one again? The, 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 I'm scrolling through. Uh, there will be blood. Yeah, very yes. well deserved. Like he, it is insane that this film, No Country for Old Men, a certified classic, Best Picture winner, mm-hmm. is released the same year as another instant classic, the yeah. a film that the yeah. BFI called the greatest film of the 21st century. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> B movie. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can we edit out the sounds of the cogs working in my brain to <laughs> to think of a funny enough movie? Yeah, in another year where There Will Be Blood doesn't come out, yeah. I feel like that's probably his win. Because I think this was the front runner pretty early on. Right. Like No Country, I looked up the dates for the, the five nominees. No Country is released... Basically the earliest, November 9th. The only thing that came out before that was Michael Clayton. Right. Which was a slow indie build. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But Juno, uh, after debuting at festivals, came out in December with Atonement. There will be blood on Christmas Day. Right. And I think it was no country was known as, oh, the Coens are getting it this year. Right. They've been making great genre films uh, from the late 80s up until now. Yeah, yeah. This is the time they've gone, gone legit. So to say, right? Like outside of Fargo, yeah, like a lot of quirky comedies, Mm. or even just sort of sleeper flicks like Barton Fink and Miller's Crossing and stuff, which are all fantastic. Yeah, but yeah, I kind of have the same memory that this was was like the prestige Coen Brothers shot at an Oscar. And I think one of the only other things that was in contention at the time in November of 2007 were going, all right, well, No Country's great, but we got There Will Be Blood coming up as well as Tim Burton's Sweeney Todd, Demon Barber of Fleet oh, Street. Yeah, I was trying to look into it. That was a real front runner before anyone had seen it. And then afterwards, not so much. Right. I remember that though. I remember people being really hyped for that. Fuck. I think it was just like residual goodwill from, well, Tim Burton's whole career up until that point as well as Chicago's massive win in 2002. Oh, sure. yeah. 
yeah. Oh, Everyone's just like, yeah. oh, well, we got, you know, we, we missed out on Dreamgirls last year and Hairspray mm. this year is making so much money. We have to get a musical in there. Right. It's a period piece. It's a musical. And you're right. Yeah. Johnny Depp and Tim Burton were still respected figures in cinema. Yeah. Tim Burton might be the most overrated director, I think. Really? Wow. Yeah. I, I think Big shots called against big eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Slash big fish. Uh, I think he's accurately rated and then he genuinely becomes shit. Like, I think Ed Wood is a brilliant film. I like Big Fish. Sure. I like the Batman movies. Yeah, I mean more so now. It's still, it still seems like when he announces that he's doing something. I yeah. mean, that you still do see enough people on social media be like, oh, hell yeah, Timber. It's like... Yeah. Who gives a rat's ass what Tim Burton's <laughs> doing anymore? Like, I I, th- I guess he's still making money because he like oh Dumbo did very well. Yeah, all those yeah. Disney adaptations are like killing it at the box office. Mm. But yeah, he his he highest grossing now. movie. Yeah, his highest grossing movie is Alice in Wonderland by a huge amount. Um, but I guess should we talk about people that perhaps should have been nominated for this movie that weren't? All right, because I definitely think Tommy Lee Jones is the better supporting performance of this movie. It Whoa, did remind me right. that um, he. It is a really great performance, and I don't know if it's better than Javier. Okay, I mean, you guys both really, really into Bardem's performance. Very much so. I'm really into it, but I don't know. I well, this might be a contentious opinion. I actually think it's pretty easy to play a psycho. Like I to be like I've been doing it for twenty eight years. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the same thing I have where people go, "Oh, the Heath Ledger Joker or wh- whatever." Mm. In the past, um, maybe people's feelings about Joaquin have changed that. But I kind of have always felt like, well, yeah, you're just given the. It's like this guy's a menacing killer. Yeah, I actually acting wise don't think that that's that hard to do. I think we talked uh, briefly about uh, Hannibal Lecter. And, you know, Science of the Lambs before. I mm. think it's harder to do a charming psychopath like Hopkins does. Yep. I think that I probably agree. I think Bardem just being a scary guy, it doesn't wow me as much as something like that. If you're an, yeah, if you're an actor, I don't think that that's that much of a stretch. Yeah. And, like, I think Heath Ledger's Joker was really good, but I don't think it's some incredible, like, he really tapped into this whole other. It's yeah. just like, yeah, he's given this character that's, like, fun to do to just right. be a psycho like yeah and it's like oh he's so lost in it but it's like yeah well the makeup's doing <laughs> sure a bit. and that's sure. kind of the same with bardem he's mm. like got the haircut mm-hmm. the costume design is great like yes. i think that's like his clothes being very like basic and plain but he still kind of looks cool and sharp yeah even though he's got uh, this kind of like daggy like kind of monkeys-ish haircut. He, I feel like he looks well-dressed and really daggy somehow. Yeah. Like it's a weird combination of both. So it's that and then it's like the, what would you call it, the pump, the, his like weapon thing. Uh, what is it? It's like a... Pneumatic. Yes, pneumatic. It's a pneumatic cattle gun. But that's what's adding, that's what's doing so much of the heavy, and not that his yeah. performance isn't good, Yeah. but all those things are definitely, in terms of you being like scared by this character... And in turn, making that feel like he's giving this incredible, scary performance. Mm. It's so much of that other stuff is is contributing to it. I completely agree. Yeah. It's if you're playing a character who murders people on screen, you're gonna be an intimidating figure. Mm. I yeah. feel like, and it's there's a lot about the movie that contributes to that being tense and scary. Tommy Lee Jones has the harder job. I absolutely think so. He has to close the film talking about a fucking dream. <laughs> yeah. That's rough. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Tim, uh, what do you think of Bardem? At the time, it was a lock that he was going to get it. Right. Because the narrative was already there. Like, he had already been nominated in... What was it called? Beautiful? Two th- well, that was 2010. He oh, went right. on to get a nomination for that. But oh, in 2000, right. he got nominated for Before Night Falls. Okay. So that was his first... It wasn't even a, a breakout into Hollywood. It was mm. one of these outlier foreign film nominations that he got right but then never really broke into anything hollywood afterwards right like the next mainstream hollywood thing he does is a cameo in collateral in 2004 oh wow like he's not getting much for the sea inside which was a foreign film he did goya's ghost didn't really get anything love in the time of cholera mm-hmm. I'm just having a look through his filmography here yeah this really put him back on the map yeah just like this is a guy that we thought was going to make it big in 2000 he didn't went away made some other films now he's back playing this psychopath who is charismatic in a way that you can't take your eyes off it. And if we put it in the context, I had a look 
while you guys were talking through the best supporting actor wins up until that point. Mm. And before this year, it had been, you know, Alan Arkin as a friendly grandfather. Right. You know, Morgan Freeman as a scrappy assistant in Million Dollar Baby. Uh, you know, people who've been put upon and uh, more classic supporting actor roles where it's man who is... Like a warm-hearted foil to the lead, basically. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So this had really changed it. And in retrospect, it's insane that they went so hard on it where it's like, this guy plays a psychotic killer. He's crazy. You don't know what's going to happen. He could do anything at any one point. It's so intense and scary. We have to give the best supporting actor to this guy because who knows when we're going to have another psychotic, insane, (laughs) crazy clown-like figure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then the next year... Like, literally, Anton Chigurh is an agent of an embodiment of sort of a, an abstract concept of evil. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You could say he's like a dog chasing cars. You wouldn't know. He wouldn't know what to do once he got him. <laughs> I wouldn't say that personally. <laughs> I could barely say it if you listen back. Um, it's interesting that this movie has two such strong supporting performances because I don't know necessarily that Josh Brolin is putting in something Oscar worthy. I could see I, I I could see him getting a nomination for what he does in this film. Mm. The fact that he's killed off so early in the film, um, I think, tends to help with that kind of thing. I think right. he would have gotten something based on it. Oh, he chose this role knowing that he's going to get killed two thirds of the way through. An interesting choice, mm. and I think the acting branch would have commended him for it. Right, right. I think personally, Llewellyn is not a deep enough character for me to maybe respect that. The performance? I agree with that. I don't think he's... And maybe it's, you know, in the same film with these great performances from yeah. Tommy Lee Jones. And I do still think Bardem's is a good performance. Mm. Yeah, 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 um, for sure. That it's just kind of like, oh, he's, he's the lead guy. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of it's he's walking around finding a bag. Like, he's, you know, yeah. he's, he's not really doing heaps. I mean, he does have maybe my favourite line in the film mm. where he's what the, kind of the first time you hear him talk when he's like gets back to his house after finding the money and everything Yeah, and his wife talking to him and he's, well, he says, says something like, Honey, you won't believe it. This is no country for old men out there. <laughs> yeah. Great he's, delivery on that. <laughs> he says something to her like, if, if you're not careful, I'm going to take you in back and screw you or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> this is like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I like that. I kind of really like the way that unfolds. Of just like he he's wordless, and mm. you go, oh, I guess we're on this guy's side. He's found this money. He's the main guy. I guess he seems yeah. cool, you know. And then you kind of hear him talk and interact with his wife. It's like this guy's a fucking asshole. Absolutely, he's a dumb, dumb asshole. He's clearly just kind of greedy, doing mm. this out of. Being in the right place at the right time, but yeah. yeah, being sort of... He's the type of character that the Coens do very well. Right. Dumb, put upon every man who find themselves entangled in these crazy mafia and mob plots. Sure, yeah. yeah. His character flaw is that he was opportunistic. He was like, I could have walked away from this and my life would be exactly the same, but I decided to take the opportunity to take the money and everything's fucked because of it. Right, but also, how many people would you have watched that film who putting themselves in that position wouldn't do the same thing. Which I guess is why it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah. Right? I, and I think him being... So, like, Tommy Lee Jones's character is simplifying this good mm. and and Javier Bardem is evil and mm. I guess, yeah, Josh Brolin is the normal person. Now, He's could you explain extreme. it in terms of true neutral, chaotic <laughs> evil <laughs> and neutral good? <laughs> I watched this with my girlfriend who'd never seen it before. And uh, when he when yeah when he gets back to the house and he's being a real prick mm. to his wife, she goes, "God, women put up with a lot." <laughs> like, I mean, you, you're not wrong. I don't yeah. know that's necessarily the take yeah. the film is aiming to have at this juncture. Yeah. It's not I, honestly. I think that's a pretty good take by the by the end of the movie. Yeah, true. Like, yeah, God, yeah. There are all these guys just fucking idiots running around trying to prove something and, hey, the women certainly cop it. I didn't watch this with my girlfriend because when I told her the title, she goes, who's the hottest old man in it? And I said, Tommy Lee Jones, and she said, pass. (laughs) Great. Yeah, this actually worked out good because she'd never seen it and had wanted to. Mm. And I was like, oh, I'm doing this podcast. I'm going to try and watch it this week. And so, yeah, we watched it together. And the, the very beginning of it where you get Tommy Lee Jones... Uh, narrating yeah, voiceover, yeah. kind of setting yeah. everything up, and then the first thing you see is this young sheriff with Javier Bardem in custody. Oh yeah, and yeah. Then he's back at the station, and then Javier Bardem sneaks up behind him and kills him. 
And my girlfriend went, oh, what? The narrator just died. Like, <laughs> this guy could not sound – this guy's like 20. And the voice over the start is this like incredibly grizzled, gruff yeah. old voice. They're just both guys from the south, I guess. Yeah. I, uh, that's and so that that comment right at the start, I'm like, oh, is this going to be a rough watch? <laughs> is yeah, going to be a rough watch? Be explaining a lot. <laughs> yeah. You're pulling up Tommy Lee Jones' filmography on your phone, cracking your knuckles. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I uh, I think it's also worth making note of Kelly McDonald's performance. She's basically the only female character of any note in mm-hmm. the movie. Um, and she's great. She has a couple of really key scenes. Obviously, the last scene yep. with Anton Chigurh is great. I think she's really, really good in it. She's fantastic. I, I'm a big fan of Kelly McDonald. Big fan of her, everything she's done. Mm-hmm. Big fan of Boardwalk Empire, which yes. I know, Ben, you love as well. Yeah, yeah. She'd had an interesting career up to this point. Like The first thing she did, first film she did was Train Spotting. Right. Great debut. Yeah. And stayed mostly in, in the UK for the time being Elizabeth, and I think she was in Gosford Park as well. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, and I think the biggest thing she'd done up until this point was uh, the, the Nanny McPhee movie. <laughs> right. Which... Hey, in terms of did I see that in the cinema? You bet your sweet ass I did. Oh, what is she in that? Is she? She's not Nanny McPhee. No, that's Emma Thompson. Okay. I haven't seen it in the cinema or otherwise. Oh. Yeah, we're cool older guys, Tim. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you were waiting for the Steelbook Blu-ray release. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Uh, yeah, she kills it in this. She was. She was fantastic. Yeah. yeah if we yeah. go back to Josh Brolin for a second. Yeah. I want to say, I was looking up his filmography. He's had an insane career up until this point. Right. Like, he was a child actor. His first movie was The Goonies. Yeah, yeah. After that, doesn't really do much. Like, he does, like, a David O. Russell flirting with disaster movie in the 90s. Mm. Small role. He's in Mimic with uh, Guillermo del Toro. And he basically stops doing movies after 2000. Hollow Man is his biggest film up until that point. Yeah, right. Right. And then between 2000 and... He doesn't do anything until 2003. But he kind of comes back with this movie. Yeah. He he does one movie in 2004, 2005, and 2006. And then 2007, Grindhouse, In the Valley of Allah, No Country for Old Men, and American Gangster. All in one... Yeah, yeah, right. Fuck. Amazing, yeah. W the next year, he gets nominated for Milk, Best Supporting Actor. Oh, yeah. He fully turns it all around in one year. I remember reading a little bit about him, I guess around the time of this movie's release, he was like an out-of-work actor. Like he, he was fucked. He couldn't get any work at all. And I think getting this, he had to get like testimonials from his friends which, who were like Robert Rodriguez and guys like that that he'd worked with before. He, yeah, he just filmed a video audition on the set of Planet Terror and sent it in. Yeah, fuck. Yeah. Uh, and I think like for all my sort of talk about the role not being particularly deep and him not being like, you know, an Academy Award <laughs> worthy guy, he is good. I think he's really, really good in he this He plays role. it well, yeah. yeah. It's kind of the Tommy Lee Jones thing where you're, pl- yes, you're doing a good job, but you're playing against one of the most flashy, showy performances of the year in Javier Bardem. Yes. Yeah. Like Tommy Lee Jones is... It's it's hard to be a sympathetic character in these types of films. Right. You're a old man beaten up by the world and you have to show your world weary but still with it and pose enough of a threat to the villain of the movie. Yeah, I mean not every not every performance in every film can be someone bouncing off the walls like mm. every film needs the person who's just kind of like Keeping the keeping the tempo, yeah, yeah, and it, you know it's it's interesting that Brolin was at that point of his career because plenty of other people probably would have been offered it and been too proud to do it, and you know not wanting to take a back seat and be just kind of setting the mood. And so, yeah. do you want to hear who turned down the role of Llewellyn Moss? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Hey, can we can g- we take a guess? Have a guess. Yeah. All right. Big big actor at this time. Um, Two thousand seven. Is it a Josh Brolin type? Uh, <laughs> Give me one of them Josh Brolin types. It's not if you put them next to each other and said these were both up for the same role. Not crazy. Not crazy category. Okay. Is it a previous Cohen collaborator? No. no. Okay. Okay. No. Also, also in a big cowboy movie. Okay. Russell Crowe. No. Little Nas X. Although. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just spot on. Russell Crowe is along the right lines in terms of the country. Oh. Oh, Heath? Yes. Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger turned down the role of Llewellyn Moss to spend more time with his daughter. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. I think that that would have made Llewellyn too sympathetic. I like I the choice that. of Josh Brolin because he plays it as a... Physically, he's a larger guy than Heath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. 
and it just seems like it adds to that big lunkhead stereotype that we go into it with. Yeah, this guy being a welder and a Vietnam veteran. It took me, you just reminded me of this, it took me so long to realise when this movie was set. Oh, yeah. And I kept, I, you know, they keep mentioning he's a Vietnam vet and I kept going, oh, it seems like a, seems like a stretch. They probably should have gotten a older guy. Yeah. Like I thought it was set to current date, it was like 2007. Yeah, fuck. I'm like, fuck Really? What? <laughs> so it's set in 1980. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and yeah. it wasn't until there, uh, where there's something that you see that just says 1980 on it. I think it's the only time you see it is during the coin flip where he goes, this coin was made in 1958. It's been taken 22 years to get here. Yes. And oh, you yeah. have to do the math yourself like <laughs> yeah. a chump. This isn't what I watch a movie for. <laughs> okay, yeah, I missed that. There's like something that comes up that says 1980 and I was like, oh, and it's like it's right. three quarters of the way through. Right. And then I was trying to think like. Oh, Kelly McDonald says, do you want to go see The Empire Strikes Back? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was trying to piece together like, oh, is this set in 1980? And then being like, well, yeah, I guess I ha- you haven't seen anything yeah. modern. Like no one's on a mobile phone, which which also, well, that's just stylistic thing. Like, yes. you know. That's yeah, small totally. town Texas for you. Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, apparently, so the guy who plays uh, the deputy... Wendell? Yeah, Wendell. Mm-hmm. Garrett Dillahunt? He not he really tried to get the role of Llewellyn. He auditioned like five times really? for it. Yeah, he was very, oh. very keen. Uh which makes sense. He he's probably a little closer to it than Heath, but I, I still think probably Brolin's better than him. I think oh, Woody Harrelson's also in this and he's fucking sick. <laughs> yeah, love Harrelson. Yeah. Um, I love a movie where you can go, oh yeah, Woody Harrelson's also in this. <laughs> yeah. And Stephen Root. Like that whole yes. section of like the weird company whatever the hell is going on that you never really get the context for is really fun and yeah fucking woody's great so that was one of my questions yeah that Mm. didn't i didn't really get i mean i got it enough Mm -hmm. but it was a bit of a thing of uh you know watching it with someone else and my girlfriend going so what's what's going on here who are these guys and then having to be like I don't know. <laughs> I'm just sitting here confused and I don't even have the confidence to ask or say anything. <laughs> yeah. You just occasionally put a finger to your lips and go, hmm, interesting. <laughs> yeah. To tie it into last week's episode of Michael Clayton, that's yeah. a, it's another dodgy mm. company we don't know anything about. Yeah. We, we know that Stephen Root's character is a big wig in this company and that they are using it as a drug front, I believe. I guess so, yeah, yeah. And then Woody Harrelson's another hitman that they have. Yeah, I didn't really get that until you said that oh, in really? the plot summary. I didn't get that he was a hitman. I just right. assumed, I don't know, like... He was I, I didn't a fixer quite get or something. Negotiator yeah. or just right. he's been... Yeah, I mean, and I, I kind of like that, that you just... It is mysterious, hmm. like, what's his actual... Role, what it's, does he do? It's very vague because he calls himself, what, a day trader when he's talking to mm. Shigur, but I think he's trying to play down his own role. Mm. I, I, f- to me, it sort of seemed like he was a, on the same, or in the same field as Shigur, like a mercenary, right. a gun for hire, maybe not like a killer, like a hitman, but mm. someone who had probably killed people. Right, but you don't really see him come close to doing anything like that. No. So it's just like... Yeah, what what does this guy other than turn up in the hospital and intimidate him? But right. that, it, you don't get the sense like, oh, he'd you know, that's he'd true. pop a cap if he had to. It's just like, no, that's what he does. He just sits and he menaces and then he yeah. disappears. I think it's a weird coincidence. I only found this out last year. Mm. Woody Harrelson's dad was a real life hitman. Yes, maybe really? that's what yeah. made me think it more. But yeah, right, yeah, yeah. His father, <laughs> <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald Harrelson. <laughs> but that's no, that's true, and that's. Maybe I have sort of like conflated all of that information in my head, but it, I think it's left vague enough that he certainly could be. Because like, yeah, who are you sending after Shigur if not someone else who can kill people? Here's another one from the files of I didn't understand this. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I really am so dumb. <laughs> it wasn't until the end credits that I realised oh. that Tommy Lee Jones's character's name is Ed Tom. Mm. Every time I think specifically his wife was talking to him. I thought she was calling him Anton. And I kept being like, they got two characters in this film with the same first name? This is ridiculous. <laughs> That's stupid. <laughs> hey, I'm not debating that. I'm just Harvey trying to be honest. <laughs> it helps the year confusion as well because you're thinking, well, Harvey has him as a young man yeah. in the 80s. Yeah. And now he turned it to Tommy Lee Jones in the 20 teens. <laughs> um, let's, uh, maybe let's get around to our favourite scenes of this movie. 
What is your boys' favourite scenes? <laughs> I forgot another it. classic segment for the age. <laughs> <laughs> um, I forgot how awesome this bit is. Mm. The uh, he's in the hotel and he's looking through the crack in the door at mm-hmm. the light and the feet, and then you just see the light go off in the hallway. Ooh, I remember yeah. that in the cinema, like distinctly, just everyone being like, "Oh!" Like one of those like yes. out loud visceral responses from everyone in the cinema at once. Yep. Mm-hmm. That s- entire sequence is fucking flawless, I think. Yeah. Like the take like knowing that he's creeping around barefoot, the creaking of the floorboards, mm. calling down to the front desk and it just ringing out. Oh. It's just a mu- it's like Hitchcock level suspense. Totally. It's so well constructed. There's so many small short films in this mm. made out of the small ins and outs of preparing and meticulously fixing themselves. Like when mm. Javier Bardem has to repair his leg, which has just been shot out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the chase scene, uh, the storing the money in the actual vents. I think my favourite yeah. scene is when Ed Tom Bell, which Tommy is one person, goes back <laughs> to the hotel. So the killer, yeah. Is he friends with Anton? Or <laughs> they must be brothers, I guess. I can't be alone in this. <laughs> Folks, if you're listening, yeah. tweet in. I can't be alone in this. Anyway, when Anton Bell finishes inventing the telephone and goes back to the hotel... <laughs> and he goes through the police tape and he suspects that there's someone behind the door and oh, you can see fuck, that yes. the, the, the knob's been shot out. Yeah. And, and you get you cut to Shigur hiding somewhere. Now, what I like about this is I a couple of years ago, I read an article about this mm. from one of my favorite film bloggers from and so it begins films.com. They did this article about what is actually happening there. Right. Like, is he physically in the room and escapes, or is it a manifestation of Ed Tom Bell, one person's fear about <laughs> what is actually in the room? Or is oh. it simply a shot of him? From two hours beforehand. Yeah. Or is he in the other room? Is he in the other room next door? Yeah, there's a lot of ambiguity to that scene. I, I yeah. I, the more I was sort of thinking about it today and reading a bit about the movie, the less sure I got of what was happening there. Because no matter what happens, it's a, a film technique that hasn't been used up until this point. So you, you don't know what is happening. Right. It could be a flashback. It could be intercutting a different space. Base to confuse a viewer. It could be all in their imagination. You just yeah. don't know. And I, I think that's what made it Tim's choice for top scene. <laughs> <laughs> Never done that before. Who knows? Now you gotta again? do it every yeah, week. Every fucking week. I think, yeah, that's a great, that's a really good pick. I guess because you just never literally see them in the same physical space, that leaves it. Amb- also, the fact that Tommy Lee Jones goes throughout the entire sort of apartment, goes to the window, which is very visibly locked from the inside. It's like, well, how could he have closed it behind him if he did escape? Mm. Is he still in there, but he's not? Like you see behind the door, I guess. Does he go out Mm. the door when he's in the bathroom? Right, right. I think the ambiguity, there's so many moving balls and it it, it takes a while for it to all sink in. Like I remember watching it the first time and not knowing anything about that scene, just thinking, sure. oh, okay, well... He's going to go in and he's going to be behind the door. Yeah, he went in, he wasn't behind the door. Oh, okay, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> right, It's but that's the thing. It's like it is so tense as he is about to enter. Like, there's by this point in the movie, I think we're all a bit like, oh, Llewellyn, you're kind of a selfish, dumb idiot. The sheriff is like the guy that you're rooting for. I think what we're downplaying, and it's very easy to downplay, is this is a technically... Amazing film, right? Yeah, like it is edited fantastically, shot, directed. It looks fantastic. Uh, yeah. It flows really well. Mm-hmm. Acting, I, I could, it's a ten out of ten on all categories. Yeah, I, I guess that's that's a really good point. This scene becomes confusing in a bad way if it's not perfectly constructed. Yes, I also uh, only realized after finishing watching the movie and sort of reading up about it a bit. This, this is very dumb as well. It's just sort of like something Tommy would say. There's no. <laughs> I think I'll be the judge of that. Yeah. Thank you very much. He was about to say, "My name's Tommy Dasselon," <laughs> which is a very you thing oh, to say. So- <laughs> There's no score in the movie. Yeah. yeah. Hey. Yeah. Okay. I'm not that dumb. Wow. You really hit the nail on the head there, Tommy. <laughs> there's no. There's no score. There's no. There's nothing amplifying these scenes except 
the scenes themselves, the tension of what's happening. There's yeah, no good point. There's no music. Did this, before I bring this up, did it actually win uh, any of the sound editing or sound no. mixing? No, it did not. Okay, but but my favorite scene is this is a cop out. It's two, and it's like it's the bookends. It's it's the opening monologue mm-hmm. with the the still shots of you know the Texas sort of plains, and it's it's the end. It's I guess the scene with his wife. Maybe I'd stretch it to include that scene with his with his old mate. Who's retired? Oh yeah, living with all the cats. His brother, I believe. His brother, his I brother? Think, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Barry Corbin in the the ramshackle house with all the cats. Yeah, <laughs> it's if I yeah I'd include maybe the start, um, but yeah, sort of that ending. With the more you go cats. on, I think you're going to include the entire film in this <laughs> well, favorite scene of yours. No, I think I'm specifically excluding everything between that because I think yeah, having watched it again and I think watching it as an older. Person, like I watched it when I was twenty originally. Yeah, this is twelve years later for me. I think, yeah, the perspective that the film portrays of getting older and watching the world not change, despite your efforts to change it for the better, is really powerful. Yeah, I think it's all in that opening where you get sort of like the sheriff. It's like my dad was a sheriff, my granddad was a sheriff. And then he talks about the kid that he he arrests who gets sent to the electric chair and it's this guy who was like, they were saying I was a crime of passion but the guy tells the sheriff, I've been trying to, I've been wanting to kill someone for my entire life and him just not understanding that at all. And then coming full circle. (laughs) (laughs) Not understanding something that happens in the world of this movie. I can definitely relate to old Tommy on that one. Tommy's watching these two men talk, just like I thought they were the same character. <laughs> I thought this was the clumps. Yeah, <laughs> this guy has ten cats or one cat. I can't tell the difference. <laughs> but and then yeah, I guess the bookend of. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing at the idea of Tommy watching Gemini Man and not getting it. Yeah, <laughs> or cats. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so the end of the movie where he has retired, he's basically given up that's what happens to his character yeah that he is faced with the horror of the world and is just like i've put in you know 70 years to try to fix this and it's getting worse in front of my eyes and yeah talking to his brother uh his brother providing sort of that wisdom and insight of like it's always been bad don't think you're special because you weren't able to fix it and because then, you noticed yeah, yeah 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 i think the scene where he talks about the dreams that was genuinely baffling to me at the time. And I think maybe I just tried to be like, yeah, I get this as a 20-year-old. <laughs> like it, it, it certainly has an impact on you as a viewer, mm. whether you intellectually understand it or not. I remember at the time being like, wow. Yeah. Well, good thing you guys are sitting down for this one because this will be a shock. I'm still not entirely sure I get it. Mm. But I wanted to talk about it because I remember, I remember very clearly seeing it at the cinema and mm-hmm. like you were saying, Tim, like everything – is a 10 out of 10, like the editing, everything's so deliberate and precise. Yeah. And then that ending and just him talking hard out into credits. Yep. I remember in the cinema people being pretty up in arms. Right. Like the entire cinema I was in being like, what? I certainly, like a lot of people yeah. audibly yeah. not into it. I remember feeling that watching it on DVD as well. Yeah. And my I'd, girlfriend I'd... had kind of the same response the other night. Yeah. She right. was like, What? Like she just, just just the fact that it ended so abruptly, yes, just yeah. kind of caught her off guard. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I saw it the first time, thinking like, that is kind of a weird end. Like mm-hmm. it just kind of ended very abruptly. It didn't really give you any loose ends tied up or anything like that. I don't know that I'm mad at it. Like I kind of don't mind an ending like that. But then rewatching it, realizing. Oh no, there's not really any loose ends at all, really. Sure. Like outside well, of the villain getting away, which isn't that crazy of a idea in a, a crime thriller like this. Not yeah. to be a backseat director, would this ending have been more effective if, if it was soprano style, him describing the dream over journeys don't stop believing? Because <laughs> <laughs> then you're saying what, but you got the good tunes kicking in. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. I uh, this was going to be sort of my question of the movie to you guys is what do the dreams mean? What do you what do you think they mean? Does do they have to mean anything for it to be an okay ending? 
yeah. Refresh my memory. What was the first dream again? So the first dream, he... It was about meeting him in town somewhere. He can give me some money. I think I lost it. The second one, it was like we was both back in older times. And I was a horseback going through the mountains of the night, going through this pass in the mountains. It was cold and there was snow on the ground. He rode past me and kept on going, never said nothing going by, just rode on past. And he had his blanket wrapped around him and his head down. When he rode past, I seen he was carrying fire and a horn the way people used to do. And I, I could see the horn from the light inside of it, about the color of the moon. And in the dream, I knew that he was going on ahead. He's fixing to make a fire somewhere out there and all that dark and all that cold. And I knew that whenever I got there, he'd be there. And then I woke up. I think the idea of losing the money is tied into the second dream as well. I think mm-hmm. they both represent uh, either an innocence or a hope that the world is a good place. Right. So his father, when he was younger, instilled in him an idea that the world is good and worth fighting for, to borrow the ending line of Seven. It's worth being a just person and becoming a sheriff to mm-hmm. um, police this crazy world. Mm-hmm. And he loses that sense of hope. The idea of him following his father who is lighting a fire and providing warmth and uh, 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 light, basically. Because mm-hmm. a big motif of this movie is characters running into storms. Yeah, You see at the start Llewellyn Moss tracking that deer literally into storm cover. Yeah, that's He's, true. The clouds come over and you see that darkness come over the The, the chase plane, scene yeah. before he goes into the river is running towards, away from the sunrise into stormy like, weather. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Characters driving towards storms mm-hmm. and an encroaching darkness. And this father figure character in the dream is still going that way, still going towards the inevitability of a more violent, more young-leaning life that Tommy Lee Jones just can't keep up with. Mm-hmm. But he does still retain this hope that the world is a good place. Right, Which yeah. is the fire, which is providing warmth, light, and ultimately guidance. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I think like... Or mm-hmm. he's nervous about an exam. <laughs> <laughs> he just should have pictured his dad naked. Yeah. I think we just fine. wrote the best college humour video of 2009. <laughs> uh, I think there's one of the... Like the second last line of that dream, he says something like, I knew that he would be there waiting for me, which I think, yeah, is, is key. I think I think you're spot on, Tim. I think that's exactly what they mean. It is a wild choice to have a film's title and theme and basically plot hinge on one person describing a dream at the end and then give that long monologue to the most mumbly-voiced <laughs> actor in the entire cast. Oh, that's, this is not particularly important in the analysis of the movie, but the first time and second time I saw this movie, I understood, like, fuck all mm. of what Shigur was saying yeah. and what Tommy Lee Jones mm. was saying. Well, yeah. the first time you were watching it, you were watching it with subtitles that have been translated to another language and then back to English. Yeah, yes. yeah, this yes. is true. This is true. It's muffled. It's one channel. It's mono audio. <laughs> <laughs> it kept auto-focusing on different parts of the screen as yeah. characters were entering. But I do remember really struggling to understand what Anton Shigur was saying. And I got it. I got a lot more lines this time at home, but I still missed a few. I think. I remember I read the script of this mm. one time at work when I didn't have much on. Mm. I had stuff on. I was just ignoring responsibility. Sure. Shout out to my former employees. Can't <laughs> fire me now. <laughs> um, I think you mean uh, that was a dream that you had. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my dad had got me a job, yeah. and then I had lost it, which is actually true <laughs> in real life. That true. has that my dad did fire me from a job once. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> he built fires in the old west. <laughs> oh, you fucking you dropped some money in the ground in the street. <laughs> I kept trying to pick it up, but my feet kept kicking it down into the gutter. <laughs> but yeah, I completely agree I th- with that assessment of the dreams. Yeah, hadn't thought about it as in depth as that. Mm. But just basically, yeah, he he was he felt like you know you're a little kid you look up to your dad and you look up to them in such an extent that you are going to go into the same profession as mm-hmm. them and you 
you know, you idolize your parents and you see them like fighting crime and fighting evil and it's like, cool, I'm going to do exactly what you did. Yep. My my dad's the coolest, best guy in the world. I'm going to do what he's doing. And then you don't feel like you've been able to do that at all. Yeah. He was going on ahead of you. He was like, hey, I'm I'm ahead of you. I'm doing all this stuff. Yeah, it's I'm, like, I'm, I'm gonna, blazing the trail. I'm blazing the trail. Yeah. I was talking to someone today who works in law enforcement and we were talking about the difficulty of... Uh, the system and you know the industry and all the 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 inability to get things done and stuff like that how hard it is but if you're not fighting against the bad people then and, and sort of like how you can fight against the bad people it's your job every single day you put all your effort into fighting against the bad people in the world combating evil trying to stop crime from happening knowing that you can never stop all crime and you have to, like the job of a police officer or someone in law enforcement is to persist in that fight despite knowing it is hopeless yeah. to ever mm. actually win. Talking about it more, it just seems more and more crazy that this was the same year as There Will Be Blood and it was so hotly contested because we're going like thematically, this mm. is the complete opposite film. Like There Will Be Blood is a film about a father and son relationship and in the background there's this encroaching feeling that evil will continue to grow in the world mm-hmm. where in no country for old men it's completely reversed it's a story about the world becoming more evil as you observe it with this father-son relationship in the background yeah, yeah. right yeah and that's tim's top tip <laughs> for the oscars 2008 uh i you think get to a point on this podcast where everything you say is its own segment yeah. <laughs> yeah. i think it's interesting that i think people felt that there was ambiguity not even not just about the plot but about the meaning of the film you know, the ending people feeling was very abrupt and not being certain what was going on when the meaning of the movie is in the title mm like it literally is. It's there is no country f- for old men. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, it feels so dumb to say it aloud. I think me and Tommy were genuinely baffled <laughs> at how you thought that sentence was going to end. <laughs> well, you know what I'm like. I'm like, where's this going? What's he going to say next? I'm, I'm no confused. Cu- no country for lack of a better word for old men. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's all right there. Like. Tommy Lee Jones's character gets old and he realises that the world... <laughs> there's no country for him because he's an old man. Within the, yeah, the no, world, we got it. There's, no, there's, co- there's countries <laughs> yeah. and none of them yeah. are for him. Yeah, no, no, not for him. Yeah. This is a country. Make no mistake about it. <laughs> no country, and I cannot stress this enough, for old men. <laughs> I say no country. You say old men. No country. Old men. <laughs> Uh, uh, what a good movie It's fantastic <laughs> Yeah, I think we should probably wrap up this chat I And I, I reckon I know the answer to this But do we think this should have been nominated for Best Picture? And do we think it should have won? It's a 100% lock for a nomination Looking back at the five films that we've talked about the last five weeks mm-hmm. I w- am very confident that this would have won any year it would have come out Yeah it is a fantastic example of a pulpy genre flick that the Academy would want to reward, but flips enough of the expectations and has an ambiguous enough ending and thematic choices that really raises it above. Mm. And that with the narrative of the Coen brothers being so uh, lauded for years up until this point, yep, I'm fully confident that this would have won at the time. Very happy it did. I completely agree. I think... Up until rewatching it for this week's episode, I was maybe a little less sure. Obviously, yeah, we watched There Will Be Blood again and just, yeah, reconfirmed how fantastic that is. But, yeah, having watched it again, this is one of the greatest movies of all time. Mm. <laughs> it's it's better than I even remembered. This is like a six out of five. I, there's nothing wrong with this movie. Yeah, I think definitely deserved to be nominated. Uh and I haven't seen it since it was at the cinemas, but I do at the time and probably still now. I like There'll Be Blood a little bit more. Yeah, right. So personal ranking would probably be that, I mean, it's just, I don't know, it's grander. It's mm. it's bigger. Yep. I don't know. Like I said, I haven't seen it since it was at the cinema, but mm. I did absolutely fucking love it Yeah. when mm. I saw it at the cinema. I'm I trying can- to remember what order I saw them in, but. Yeah, right. I think I was rooting for There Will Be Blood 
that year. One of the biggest mm. two horse races in Oscar histories. Yeah. I, I don't think anything else going up against it had the momentum. Yeah. I guess maybe Juno was the closest because it could have been the indie darling that could. Sure, it's such through. a different... It would be a different pick. It's a different category almost for, for the voters. But I think going into the 2008 ceremony, everyone thought this is There Will Be Blood or No Country. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm just salty because my favourite movie of all time came out this year and didn't even get a nom. Oh, Ratatouille? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. <sighs> well, who knows? That might be coming up next week's episode <laughs> when we discuss our own personal top fives of the year and we talk about yeah. 2007, 2008 ceremony mm. uh, wrapping up in general. Yeah, yeah, we'll be doing our top five personal films that weren't nominated for Best Picture. We'll do some uh, performance uh, nominations personally as well. Uh, and yeah, just talk generally about the the year that was. Thanks, Tommy, for chatting about No Country for Old Men. Thanks, boys. Thank for you having very me. much. <laughs> uh, any shows you want to plug? Oh yeah, me and Ben do a podcast every week mm. about video games. Yeah, People yeah. Can check out. Yeah. It's called Filthy Casuals. It's good. Good stuff. Uh, and oh, if- we talk about movies on. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, sub podcast to that Nintendo sixty nine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, I forgot that's what it's no. called. That is kind of what I was angling for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where I knew you would mention it, and then off the back of that, you would have to then be forced to. Say, I was really playing uh, 3D chess on that <laughs> yeah, one fuck. to get you to say Nintendo 69. <laughs> yeah, the Patreon feed is named after the. The group chat that we have to yes. organise yeah. the podcast, yes. which is named after our idea of originally for mm. the title of the mm. podcast. Yeah, it's pretty confusing stuff. I also yeah. have a comedy festival, a Melbourne comedy festival show uh, coming up that's on sale now. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, listeners. Uh, hopefully, we can get a patron and name it after our group chat, which is Doctor Cinema. Mm. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, do we, we want to tease? What uh, year and ceremony we'll be doing next? I think we should save that for the next episode. All right. <laughs> Ooh, a tease for a tease. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week. Yes, thank you. Uh, follow us uh, at Ben Vanell on all the socials, at Mr. Timothy Clark mm-hmm. on all the socials. And um, I just want to take this time to just say thank you. I just want to say thank you. <laughs>